Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Health IT Influence. My name is Bill Russell, former healthcare CIO for 16 Hospital System and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Today, we have a treat for you. We are joined by Scott Becker of Becker's Healthcare, founder of not only the conferences, the media assets, but also the Becker's Healthcare podcast. And he is just a wonderful individual, easy to talk to, which is why his podcast is one of the most successful podcasts in the industry. He talks to all sorts of people and we talk to him about a wide range of topics. We talk about the presidents that have come to the Becker's Healthcare Conference. We talk about the leaders that he's talked to, what makes a successful leader and uh, what's going on in healthcare. So we have a great visit. I think you'll really enjoy it. Special thanks to our Influence Show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare and Health Lyrics for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. If you want to be a part of our mission, you can become a show sponsor as well. The first step is to send an email to partner at thisweekinhealthit.com. Just a quick note before we get to our show, we launched a new podcast today in health IT. We look at one story every weekday morning and we break it down from a health IT perspective. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, you name it, we're out there. You can also go to todayinhealthit.com. And now on to today's show. This afternoon, we have Scott Becker, partner at McGuire Woods and publisher and founder of Becker's Healthcare and a lot of other things with us. Good afternoon, Scott. Welcome to the show. Bill, thank you so much for having me. What a great pleasure to get to visit with you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's I, I feel like I'm on the show with a celebrity. I was out to dinner last night with somebody and he goes, well, tell me what you do. I said, well, this is what I do and whatnot. It turns out he worked for one of the healthcare companies in, in Chicago before he retired. He goes, like, who do you interview? I said, tomorrow I'm with Scott Becker. He goes, Scott Becker. Oh my gosh. It's like, I feel like everyone knows who you are and you do have, I think, one of the most distinctive voices in all of podcasting. Thank you, Bill. It's a, when you say celebrity, we think of a B or C list celebrity, but thank <laughs> you for having me and I appreciate it. And it's great fun. It really is. It's, you know, as you know, it's great fun to get to visit with lots of different people and see what they're thinking, see what's going on and, and just a pleasure. Yeah, I, I've joked, and, and maybe you feel this way too. I've, I've joked that the podcast for me is really the education of Bill Russell. I get to talk to so many phenomenal people, and they just share their insights and their their wisdom. And just after a while of being around it, you just you pick up so much stuff. What a great industry to be a part of. People are just so willing to share and help each other out, and so it, it is really fun. So you're doing a lot of podcasting. You not only have the Becker's Healthcare podcast, you have the private, uh, is it is it called the private equity or business podcast? What? Yeah, really a private equity podcast that we sort of, it's more of an advanced hobby than a business, but private equity and, and some business generally, but those are, those just give me an opportunity to visit with some other people and see what's going on and learn and connect. So, but yes, the, the principal thing I do is Becker's Healthcare. I'm also a lawyer by background, but but my life really revolves first and foremost from Becker's Healthcare and secondary around being a lawyer, at least by background. Yeah, a lawyer and a degree from University of Illinois in finance. And you're almost like, like me in that you've had multiple careers. Yes, we've had concurrent careers. So yes, University of Illinois, finance, CPA, undergrad, Harvard Law School, excuse me, and then for better or for worse, and then have really practiced law for the last 30 years. A long, long time ago, when I was starting to practice law, I started the Becker's healthcare media business and ended up sort of doing those things concurrently. And they they were they were very guys, they were synergistic for a very long time. And so we had, had the fortune of building great law practice, but then also having building Becker's healthcare started off as sort of a legal marketing type thing 100 years ago, 30 years gonna be exact, and turned much more into the a centerpiece of my professional life. And what really happens is at some point, I ended up hiring magnificent people there, and they really built Becker's Healthcare into a serious franchise. And, and Jessica Cole, our editorial team, and some others, yeah. Katie Atwood, Bob Gamble, they really built it into a real media enterprise, and it's been great fun. But we sort of did them all concurrently, and it would, well, they sort of fed off each other and just kept on doing it. 
no great brilliance, but being in specific niches and hiring great people and great fun. Yeah. Well, last <laughs> do it. Last year was an interesting year, and you guys pivoted pretty quickly. The the Becker's podcast felt to me, the healthcare podcast felt like it came out of nowhere, and then it was a must-listen-to podcast. I mean, you guys started producing, I, I don't, it felt like 10 shows a week almost. Well, even more than that, actually, a crazy number of episodes. But what, what really, Becker's Healthcare had always been about 50% digital, about 50% events, and some portion of that being a print magazine, but the print magazine was never more than 5 to 10% of the enterprise, we were fortunate to already be a 50% digital type of business. And podcasting ended up fitting sort of within that. And what happens is we, we had started doing it two and a half years ago, but during the pandemic, all of a sudden the numbers of listens to podcasts and downloads just jumped, as you saw. And so we ended up doubling and tripling down on the amount of them. And, and of course, originally a lot of our business in Becker's Healthcare was these in-person meetings where you and I have met before, but those were, of course, off and canceled last year. So we ended up having a tremendous amount of time to do more of this and a, a tremendously interesting year in terms of the healthcare information world, just in terms of like, obviously, COVID-19 and, and the digital transformation and health equity issues. So many interesting issues that people wanted to talk about. We had started this two years ago. In the first year of doing podcast, we had 143 downloads to give you a sense of scale. And one of our months, last couple of months, last month, we had 250,000 downloads, just as an example of the difference in the amount of listenership from when I started. And it's discouraging when you start and 140 people listen to it the entire month. You probably had several episodes. It's a little discouraging, but it's it's grown a great deal. And it's been fascinating to just hear what's going on. It really gives you a chance as you in, yeah. in a very quick way to understand what's going on. Yeah, we, we're we, we, we can relate on so many different levels. So my, my first podcast was downloaded 28 times. And it was it was after that was downloaded, I, I said, I'm just going to commit to doing this for a year and see where it goes. Because you just you can't look at the numbers when you're first starting out. And then it, we just rode this wave. I mean, the podcasting just became huge over the last, uh, you know, three or four years. It's been amazing. Yeah. When, and you've hit it right down the middle in this week in health IT which is just a, a fascinating area. And you've got this great sort of uh, perspective on it from your years of serving as a CIO too. So it's sort of a fascinating, I mean, you've hit it just beautifully down the middle. Yeah. So uh, I, I went out and went to the community, this week in health IT community. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm interviewing Scott Becker. Do you have any questions? And the questions started flooding in. So a, a bunch of these questions are really from, from people out there in the community. So this this should be interesting. We'll start with the easy ones. Best moments from the interviews uh, so far from the Becker's Healthcare podcast? Sure. So that's that's a great question. And it's hard to, it, it, I'll give you a specific themes as opposed to exact moments. But uh, And I'll talk about some different speakers. And there's obviously some really critical leaders in the healthcare community, whether Janice Spiso at UCLA, Gene Woods at Atrium Health, Mike Dowling at Northwell, like Dean and Common Spirit, that have provided fascinating listening to hear their perspective on what's going on and with COVID and with health equity and so forth. So those are those kinds of interviews with some of the people that are right in the middle of the game. I'll talk again to Mark Harrison, the CEO of Intermountain tomorrow or, or Monday. And, and those are fascinating perspectives on just what they're seeing. But in addition to those, I get a chance to talk to people at every sort of like size and position in healthcare, not just CEOs of the majors. And some of the things that I find the most fascinating are, I talked to the CEO of a smaller health system last year, and we often ask the CEOs, what are you thinking in terms of strategy? How has strategy evolved in the last couple of years? And, and the standard answer you'll get from people is, well, strategy hasn't changed that much, but we've made some pivots. And I think I had a CEO last week say, what have you seen in terms of strategy evolving? And she had the, the wherewithal to say, well, it changed completely. We had to sort of completely throw it out the window the last year and refigure it out and relook at what we're doing and so forth. And, and I find those kinds of discussions so refreshing, just so refreshing. Like, I mean, of course, this has hit us out of nowhere. Yes, we're still serving patients. Our number one priority is is great quality and in connecting this with patients and so forth, but strategy, we had to re-evolve it and so forth. So that's that's always fascinating when somebody talks differently than the rest of the tribe. The other people that I find so fascinating to talk to 
I find as interesting as anybody to talk to, and, and so many people in healthcare fit this category, they're first-generation immigrants or second-generation immigrants, whether from India, from Africa, from wherever they might be. And, and I find the perspective so fascinating because they have such a different worldview than we do. And I enjoy those so much. And we talk so much about well, what was healthcare like in Nigeria? What was healthcare like in India? How does it look compared to here? What do you think? How was training? Talked to somebody last week as a woman doctor from Nigeria. Her mother's a doctor, and now her daughter is finishing medical school at Mayo Clinic. So three generations of, of African-American doctors from Nigeria, those to me are very special moments. I mean, they give you a fascinating human perspective on everything versus the, here's what's going on. I mean, there's other guests, Steve Klasko, we've had on a number of times, the CEO of Jefferson. I could talk to Steve Klasko all day. He's just way out in front of digital transformation. Very, very smart. Imelda Deconis, who's with Kaiser Permanente, always magnificent to talk. Deep perspectives on leadership, as well as on health equity, as well as gender issues in healthcare and how women have been treated and not treated and stuff like that. Fascinating. But there's just a whole host of people I find just fascinating. But I do love, as much as anything, talking to doctors you know, or, or leaders who've immigrated here, first, second generation, and have just a whole different world perspective than the rest of us. I, I just I enjoy that as much as anything. What I love about that, because people ask me, it's like, or do you think you'll go back to being a CIO or that kind of stuff? Do you, you know, do you really like what you're doing? I'm like, I love what I'm doing. This is to get to talk to these people and to hear their stories and to ask them the questions that get get that knowledge out into the industry. It is so much fun and it is so great to to meet those people. And it sounds like, I mean, when I hear you talk about it, you you light up as you talk about all the people you've gotten to talk to. The one interview that does to jump out at me is when you talk to Michael Dowling really during almost the, the height of the pandemic last year. And he was just sharing the burden on the, the frontline care workers and those kinds of things. That was, I mean, that was a, a pretty powerful moment. And I just, you know, I, I really appreciate you. You know, you have access to so many people within healthcare. I'm just so glad that you're not focusing just on the celebrity CEOs, but that you are going pretty broad across the, the entire industry and pulling those stories out. No, we, we love it. I'll make one comment. Mike. Mike is this fascinating individual. He's also an immigrant from Ireland. I'm not. He's an immigrant from Ireland. But he's a fascinating leader. And yet he's got this, this huge brain, crazy personal skills, and he deeply cares about everything. I mean, and it's this huge mix of talent, which is very smart, very motivated, and deeply caring and, and incredible personally gifted personal skills, but incredible caring. When you talk to what I what I find fascinating about Mike. Mike himself, magnificent, but what you really get the measure of a person is, whenever I get a chance to visit with any of the senior leaders, men or women at Northwell Health, it all comes back to the leadership culture that he's built there. Lots of highly talented people that have the same vision of compassion and energy and, and wanting to do caring great things. And that's more the measure of a leader to me than that leader speaking themselves. It's what all their other team speaks of and how they talk and, and, the, and the quality of leader that he's been able to attract and keep and retain and, and groom. So as I find that to be the biggest compliment to some of these leaders is the leaders around them and that they've grown with and how they speak of them and speak of the system. Yeah, you getting on to some of these other questions, The because yeah, it feels to me like you and I could probably talk for the next five hours. You've had a bunch of U.S. presidents at the, the Becker's conference and, and a bunch of celebrities, high-profile people, which which president's current past with their grasp of healthcare, really understanding the healthcare issues? Sure. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. So I've got three perspectives on it. I've had, in terms of actual presidents, President Bush and Clinton, um, and Hillary Clinton as well. And it, well, Hillary was not president, but so she's got the greatest grasp of the three of them of healthcare issues by far. I mean, just, she's got the most depth of any of them on actual healthcare issues by far. And that's part of how her mind works, how she approaches things and so forth. She just really does. The beauty of healthcare, one of the great things about healthcare is every single one of us, aside from whether we're involved in the healthcare industry or not, is a consumer. So, so in some ways, you can't really fool anybody about the healthcare system at least anybody that's listening or trying to pay attention because we're all consumers as well. So we see it from both sides. But I don't, I don't, I do find often that the grasp of the senior most presidents, et cetera, et cetera, is, is fine. 
but plenty of people have a better grasp of some of the healthcare issues specifically than they do. It doesn't mean that other people are better leaders than they are. I mean, George Bush, magnificent personal leader. Bill Clinton, an absolute pleasure and fascinating to listen to. But Hillary's got the greatest depth on the healthcare issues itself. Whether you agree with her where she's at in them or not. And, and then there's what's happened on the right and left. There's so much sloganeering. On the right, it might be free market for everything. And we know it's not free market because 50% plus is paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. It's already 50% of government market no matter what. And on the left, it might be Medicare for all. But we know that only 14% of the population is covered by Medicare. So if you move to Medicare for all, be prepared for a huge amount of unexpected consequences. And it's not that I'm a pro-Biden, anti-Biden, either way. I try to be as impartial constantly as I can be. But the concept of incrementally changing Medicare from 65 to 6 or something like that is, to me, far more appealing than to completely disrupting and changing the system. And so, because there's only 14% of us are covered by Medicare. I'm not covered by Medicare yet, but I will be not too long. But it's a small percentage in total in total of the population. So I find that of the three, is, well, Hillary's not a president, but, but it just comes to mind, and excuse yeah. my senioritis, but she, was, she had the most graphs of Bill, George, and her. I had the pleasure of being in law school with President Obama, where we didn't talk about health care, but he also was an absolutely fascinating leader. And I had a chance to have President Obama as a student in a class that I was the TA for, which is daunting because President Obama was far, far smarter than I was. And so what Barack would do is he would say in the class when I was explaining something, he would say, this is, I think, what Scott means to say. And, 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 and the thing about President Obama, I mean, he's, he says, I don't agree with all his policy positions and like that, but he's a absolutely wonderfully bright and nice person. And so he was able to handle this with a class of like 12 people and not embarrass me while having a brain that was just far deeper than mine. He's just a very, very bright, bright person. And so I've had that experience with, with all three of them. I mean, obviously, we would have loved to have President Trump as a speaker. The world has become so right now just because he's so combative and interesting. I mean, he's interesting, he's entertaining. When we went to try and get him as a speaker before he was president, before he was such a lightning rod, the cost of President Trump was so crazy before he was president that we couldn't do it. It just didn't make sense. Now, at some point, we'd love to have him as a speaker. We try and be balanced completely. So if we had him as a speaker, we'd also have President Clinton as a speaker or Stacey Abrams as a speaker or Clinton as a speaker. But today, the world is so combustive that we couldn't do it without people going crazy. Oh, my God, you can't have him as a speaker. You can't have her as a speaker. We get an equal amount of people upset when we have a right-wing politician or a left-wing politician and so the best that we try and do is balance it out. But Scott, aren't, I mean, so this is one of my passions in this in this role. It's we've got to get the conversation going again. It's like we have to jumpstart it again, where how do we get people to sit across from each other and just start to dialogue, just start to, I don't know, to listen to each other, to have the conversation. What I hear you saying is, let's bring these people back into the, the room together, regardless, at any time, whoever's speaking is going to be speaking, you know, to a 50% of the audience is going to be yes, absolutely. And 50% of the audience is going to be, you know, you can be more off base, but at least let's get the conversation. going. No, we, and we try and hit it as much as possible and impartial down the middle. And the truth on almost all issues is, is somewhere in between on all these things. And so, so we, we, we try and do foster that it's become harder today just because the world has become so binary. You know, as you said, the 50% issue. So we try and make sure if we're doing either, we do both. But it, yeah. but it's constantly a fascinating thing. But I, I find talking, I mean, President Bush is about as nice a person as they come. Hillary Clinton is also, you couldn't find a more pleasant person to be around. You just, you just couldn't. You just, it's just not possible. She's just like, when you actually meet her in person, whether you're a right-wing person or left-wing person, no matter what you see on TV, what you hear, what you do, she's just an absolute pleasure. And that surprised me because I didn't expect that. She just is an absolute pleasure of a person, as is President Bush. President Clinton is also a pleasure, but in a different way. I mean, he's different than the two of them, but incredibly gifted and a politician that fits a mold that you almost can't have today. He was a social liberal and a financial conservative, and that world is almost lost today, even though so many people in America really fit down that profile. Yeah. It's a, I mean, we, we could talk about presidents for, for a long time. I mean, the, 
The one thing I've heard about presidents, one of my friends, his father had to interact with each president over uh, multiple years. And it was, it was George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, and then and W. So he had interactions with all of them. And I said, what's the thing that stood out with you? He goes, first of all, when you meet them, there's a presence of the office that just is there. He said, the second thing is, it didn't matter what their politics were. They were just the most engaging people you ever come across. They, they got to be president because they are engaging people. They're warm, they're charismatic, they know how to, to have conversations with people from both sides of the aisle. And he said, that's the thing that really strikes you. I mean, you, they get painted as something in the media, but when you get to meet them on a personal level, that's really not, how it's painted in the media is usually not who they are. But I think, Bill, you fit that exactly. What the, you're struck by when you meet them and get to visit with them, they all have crazy personal skills. I mean, incredible personal skills. They're just incredible at it. And you wouldn't know it from seeing them on TV, but you meet Hillary in person and she sits with my parents. My parents are in love. They, they Wonderful. And they tend to be, my parents tend to be Democrats themselves. I tend to be more centrist, but I just absolutely love being with her. And President Bush, you talk for three minutes with him, you have mutual friends, and he talked to him three years later, and he either he's great at notes or he's just personally great at it, whatever it is, you feel very, very good about visiting with him. They're very, very good at it. President Clinton, we've had a couple times, and it's just a little bit different because he's, he, he holds himself in a higher – he doesn't get as down to earth with you in the same way, but it's got this incredible, incredible following and, and incredibly talented personally as well. All right, so let's let's get into healthcare. How would you assess the state of U.S. healthcare today? How are we doing? Let's quantify it a little bit. How are we doing with regard to the triple or quadruple aim? Sure. So, how do you look at the U.S. health system? The U.S. health system is magnificent and has huge challenges. I mean, you have to take this in the context of we're serving 330 million people. So, after India and China, we're the largest country in the world, serving a lot of people. And there are lots of challenges with it. There, there are so many sort of dichotomies. It's magnificent, and we have problems. It's magnificent, and we have access issues. We, you, we talk about coverage for all. And, and most of us come to the conclusion, right, left, or center, that at some point, we got to get coverage for all. And probably sooner rather than later, we got to figure it out. We all know it's a lot better to do it through increasing Medicaid or Medicare than through these exchanges. It just has been shown time and time again. The Congressional Budget Office shows it's much cheaper to get more people on board and covered through Medicare and Medicaid than it is through the exchanges. And that's not a knock in the exchanges. It was a road that President Obama wanted to go down because he felt another alternative to get there. But 80% of the people that have been covered through expanded Medicaid, not through the exchanges. Out of 24 million have come through expanded Medicaid, and it's a more efficient way to do it. Not, not perfect, lots of challenges. But we all think, most of us get to the spot, we think we should have coverage for all. Most of us believe that an insurance company should be able to deny us coverage because we have a pre-existing condition. Most people have gotten to that spot, right, left, center, et cetera. Most people would like a public option of some sort, just as an alternative to the health plans. And, and many of us look at it and say, well, we have the post office, which is an alternative to UPS and Federal Express, and probably a good thing versus a bad thing that we that we have. The great challenge that nobody talks about in D.C., but we do hear about it from healthcare executives all the time, and it's not a, it's not a popular issue, it's not a right-left issue, and it's why it's not talked about. The, the, the big looming problem we have, it's not coverage, because coverage is solvable. We're 9% away, we're 30 million people away, something like that, it's solvable. The great problem we have is access. Access is becoming a bigger bringing challenge with 330 million people in an aging population. So a huge aging population and lots of healthcare needs and increased shortages of doctors and nurses. And in DC, well, they talk about all kinds of things that are lightning rods for their own side of the political table, right or left. They don't talk about solving problems. And in the bigger problem we got to solve, yes, technology helps a lot, of course. But beyond technology, we need to figure out how to mint more doctors in an easier way. We need to figure out how to mint more nurses, clinicians, and so forth, how to grow more. Over the years, we've imported a lot of doctors. We still need to do that, but we all know that that's a net zero-sum game because it's not helping the rest of the world. we got to figure out a way to increase the pool of doctors versus zero. We have to make medical school a little bit easier to get into and get through. We've got to make it easier for a doctor to become a doctor, a nurse to become a nurse, clinicians to become clinicians, with maintaining rigorous standards. But we've got to fight through sort of the turf battles and the strengths of the medical boards and the AMA and everybody else. 
to, to sort of make it a little bit easier to become a doctor, a physician, a nurse, a clinician. So we're just facing looming shortages. And we've got to make it more attractive. You know, if, if you make it till somebody's 32 to become a specialist, that just makes it very hard because people know they've got short and short of professional lives. And so you 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 basically don't want to be a professional until 32 or so, giving them X years of, of practice. We, we've got to figure out the shortages issue, the labor shortages issue, as much as all these political issues, which are the political issues are fun because they get votes. But solving problems is hard. And there's big problems to solve. But so it's a magnificent system. Coverage is one thing. Access is another problem. Quality, compared to any other large country, I think is ultimately very, very good. Cost is a challenge. And, and I don't know how you're going to change that cost structure without improving the labor pool as well in this situation. But, but we also are very used to in our country getting what we want. You want your knee replaced, you get it done pretty quickly. You want to go to the urgent care you go in 20 minutes. And that's not the same in other countries. And we like those conveniences as citizens. We like those things. And I don't think we'd be happy without having those things. Is there going to be a way to change from sick care to well care to more of a health focus? I, I mean, I know we talk about it all the time, but are, are we making progress in that area? Are we making progress in that area? I mean, uh, I think we know that the answer is not really. I mean, we talk about it all the time. We talk about apps that will give people better information for their own personal fitness. Well, obviously, we've had good success in this country in smoking cessation and reducing the amount of people smoking cigarettes. In terms of health and wellness and really improving health and wellness and making it so, I mean, you could be in some cities in America where every running trail, every biking trail is full. I mean, Denver is known as one of those cities. San Diego is one of those cities. Can we change human nature so that there's so in terms of a bell curve, there's more of us acting like that. I don't know. Can you make it easier to go get the checkups you need to get to do the things you need to do to pay attention to it? Can we move more towards this model of wellness? We all talk about it. We all know that a huge percentage of our healthcare problems and costs are due to one way or another us as individuals not doing the things we need to do. And so, can we really change that? I don't know. I, I don't know. It's it's a great question. Everybody talks about so many things that I'm not clear where they're going. You know, when you see governments in uh, high school, junior high, elementary education get rid of gym classes, I, I think that just it, that's that that boggles my mind. If you want to talk about wellness, we got to start with as an adult having a gym class a day, as a kid having a gym class a day, and, you, and as an adult you define your own. But as a kid, you got to have that. You have to have that. Just in terms of, it doesn't have to be like. Running it doesn't have to be playing a competitive sport, but something that keeps the mind and body active is social important. Are we making progress? I don't know if we're making progress as a society or whether we will. Yeah, I interviewed a doctor earlier today and we were talking offline. I'm like, he's lost weight through COVID. I put on weight through COVID. I said, you're a doctor. I'm going to ask you about you know, what I can do to lose some weight. I said, but you're going to tell me the same thing every other doctor has for the last you know, 50 years, which is essentially get active and watch what you're putting into your body in terms of eating and, and your diet. He goes, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm going to tell you in different ways, but that's pretty much what I'm going to tell you. We have to get people to stop ordering Big Macs five days a week before we're going to see any movement on uh, diabetes and other <sighs> issues that are out there. And that's, that's, it's hard to say whose role that is. Is that healthcare's role or is that really public health's role? Right. I mean, less sugar, less everything. But but where does that come down in terms of individual responsibility versus versus the culture of the country versus how we push those things and, and encourage those things? I mean, the one thing I do know is that through the school systems and so forth, we ought to be having physical education and gym classes. We ought to be doing some other things as well. It just is it's too early to give up on people. And it's a horrible model because we know in the long run, this has been written so many times. But, you know, as we get older, we believe it so much more that health is the number one asset you could have. Yeah. You know, we take that for granted in our 20s, 30s, when we're a kid. You get to be in your mid-50s, you just start to like realize that when people have said that, health is your number one asset. Health is the most important thing you could have. Health is this, health is that. You sort of give that all as lip service for a long time. Then you get to your mid-50s, and you're like, absolutely, health is as important as you could have. It's, it's actually true. And, and so how do we sort of make that part of the country and what we're trying to do? But you see our... Our politicians don't talk about that. They don't. They don't use their bully pulpit to talk about that. Not in a long time, at least. I mean, I mean, to the credit of George Bush, Bill Clinton, they were fairly active. They tried to show themselves being fairly active. They sort of like 
and Bill would have his, his challenges with the periodic Big Macs and like that, but now is famously very, very careful about his diet. But but they were at least actively engaged and set that kind of role model. You want to talk about health, but we all know, and people talk about this constantly, 80% of health is outside of the hospital health system, but how to change that. When I hear systems all trying to change that, it's a laudable goal, but trying to figure out how they actually do it are different things and, and have a real impact and, and very challenging. All right, Scott, we'll, we'll move through some of these questions a little quicker. Let's start with where has the industry moved fast and where has the industry moved slower than you expect? Well, I, I think the industry has moved very, very fast in the acceleration of use of digital tools, digital technology, digital everything in the last year or so. I mean, you, you, you see like if you went just a couple of years ago to your portal for a health system, it was very clunky, very hard to use. You almost had to be on a mainframe to do it or, or a, a laptop, not your iPad, not your phone. And I think in the last year, there's been tremendous progress. Obviously, the systems that did the best at it had already invested in a lot in it before. I mean, Kaiser Permanente, way ahead of everybody else, was already doing 56% of their visits virtually before the pandemic. Jefferson Health had put a ton of effort into this early on. The systems, you know, Providence to an extent, is similar. The more systems had really put time and effort into digital up front, the more they were able to accelerate through the pandemic. But a lot of other systems are catching up and catching up quite well. I mean, they're not perfect, but they're but they're making a ton of progress. The the, the flip side is systems differ broadly in care navigation, patient navigation, ease of access. I mean, you and I, I think, know. If you want to see a specialist in our country, you could be as connected as you are, and it still is an effort to figure out how to get to the right specialist, who's the right specialist, how to get that person, how to get an appointment with that person, how to make it work. Even if you have influence and know people, it's very hard. So you could imagine people that don't know people and so forth. This is still incredibly difficult. And care navigation from the very most elite systems, sometimes in the community systems, it's far better than at the most elite systems. And so this uh, digital acceleration, digital stuff, the, system, the systems are making great, great progress. Care navigation, access in how to access care in the right way, the right spot, still a really evolving challenge. So the next question is always a fun one for me. Do new entrants pose a real threat to the incumbents and established health systems. This is the Amazon, CVS, Walmart, Teladoc, et cetera. Are they a real threat to existing healthcare providers? Sure. Sure they are. Sure. I mean, what happens is the existing health systems have some real advantages, depth of care, depth of talent, depth of people, and so forth. The CVS, Aetna's, the Optum United, you have to remember those two companies are two of the six largest in the country right now by revenues. So CVS Aetna and United Optum are 300 billion a year companies. They're, they're literally huge and they have huge amount of resources and magnificent technology. Now, when you have a choice to take your child to CVS Aetna, a CVS store, or do you take them to, in our neighborhood, Northwestern University Health System or Northwestern, generally, if it's anything more than a cold or a quick physical you got to do for your kids, you're aiming still towards Northwestern slash North Shore University Health System just because the depth of staff that the urgent care gives you more confidence that whatever it is is going to be looked at seriously, taken care of seriously. You, you take your 18-year-old in and very quickly, you've got a mono COVID strep test, you sort of know what's going on quickly with your kid, and, and you've got a doctor that's there or a PA or a nurse that's there, and you feel like they've been well-trained, they know what's going on. So, so there's still, there's still built-in advantages for the health systems. But you can't underrate the scale, the assets, the money, the technology that the Amazons, the CVSs, the Optums have. Optums, obviously, full and friend of a ton of health systems. I mean, they're one of the largest employers of doctors in the country. They're very powerful. They're very good at what they do. CVS Aetna is very good at what they do, but there's still this difference in depth and quality that people perceive in their health system versus CVS. But in the long run, the, the great strength that these new entrants have is they're not encumbered by so many of the real estate and operating costs that the health systems have. And this is this in the long run will either be a fatal flaw for health systems or it'll be their great advantage. Because, I mean, we saw during COVID at the end of the day, we needed these health systems. I mean, we needed them if you were going to really take care of patients during a pandemic. 
I mean, the biggest systems, the biggest um, contributors to taking care of patients during COVID-19 were these major, major health systems in terms of actually taking care of the people, actually taking care of people that had COVID-19 and so forth. And you needed enough mass and enough critical scale to take care of them. And the whole race the last 10 years has been to getting rid of beds. And all of a sudden, we needed beds. We found, oh, my God, we need beds. We can't get rid of beds. So so there, there's built-in advantages that the big systems have. They've got to have great depth of talent. They've got to have great you know, physician talent and nurse talent and clinician talent. But there's also huge advantages that the CVSs, the Optums, the Amazons, the Walmarts. The great issue will be whether these companies put the resources in to make themselves great providers. So, for example, Walmart Health is making a monumental effort to grow Walmart Health, and that will either be great or not great based on how deep they staff and how much you feel taken care of when you go to get taken care of the Walmart Health. And that remains to be seen. But they, they have the huge advantage of they don't have all the bricks and mortar cost that a lot of these health systems have. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But there's, there's certainly real answers, real concerns. More and more when I talk to health system leaders, they're not talking about the system down the street. They're not talking about the physician moving out with their cases to an ASC, to an outpatient surgery center. Those are threats they know. Those are the known threats. It's almost like an old Donald Rumsfeld thing. Then there's the known unknowns, which is they don't know how big a threat the, the, the CVS, the Optums, the Amazons, the Walmarts are going to be. So it remains to be seen. But no, you can't not take them seriously. they got such huge resources. Three of the six biggest, uh, four of the six biggest companies in America by revenues are Walmart, Amazon, CVS, and Optum. I mean, the, the people don't understand. Apple's right up there too, but four of the six biggest are those companies. And so you yeah. can't not take them seriously. Yeah, and I did an interview with uh, Rob Dimache, former CFO for UPMC, and he said it's. It, he goes, they're not going after the you know specialty care or the the, the highly acute care or that kind of stuff. That's not what they're going after. They are. It, it is going to be death by a thousand cuts to a lot of health systems because just like we stood up ambulatory surgery centers and other things, they just start taking revenue, profitable and, and imaging yeah. centers that just profitable revenue started getting filtered out of the hospitals. And that's what weakens the hospitals just over time. That is one of the, I think, one of the greatest threats out there. But I'm going to try to be disciplined here as an interviewer instead of going back and forth. Because I, so here's a great question from, from again, one of our listeners. Uh, how much of healthcare will shift to the home? And at what pace do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. When people talk about hospital at home, the skeptic, skeptic in me thinks of it as just a different new wave of home health. And it thinks of it as hospitals are very aggressively trying to reduce their length of stay. And this is another way to really move towards that. That's the skeptic in me. The, the optimist to me says that a, a patient would much rather be at home for those extra couple of days of length of stay. And if there's the right technology, the right care they feel taken care of, and they've got some help, the better off they are. So there's this, there's this great mix. We certainly talk to tons of health systems, whether it's Jefferson, Adventist Health on the West Coast, or others that view the growth of hospital to home as a huge, huge growth opportunity. Adventist talks about they've got 25 hospitals or 24 hospitals. They believe their biggest hospital will be their 26th hospital, which they call their hospital at home. And, and the beauty of it is, because you live in the technology world, so much of the value in the world, at least in terms of economic value, has moved towards asset light models. So, so the asset heavy models in terms of industry, the stock market getting killed, the asset light models, like the Ubers, the Airbnbs, where they don't own all the assets, they just own the technology, is where the economic value has been. Because you're not holding all these costs. You're just simply the technology interweaver of all of it. So if hospitals could move themselves to being this technology asset light business where they don't have these $5 billion campuses, and it's not so much the $5 billion cost to build the campus, it's all the constant operating costs of having that kind of, of, of bricks and mortar and, and weight, that will move hospitals more into this world of being able to spend money on technology and people versus bricks and mortar. So there's a lot of incentive to do it, to move in that direction. And it, it just depends. Again, it's like a lot of things. It depends on the health of the patient itself. Certainly, the more healthy patients would much prefer to be at home 
than in the hospital. So if you're a pneumonia patient, you're not that sick, you're going to be at home. If you're recovering from surgery and you don't require that much care, you're going to be at home. My, my father just had a procedure. He could have been in the hospital for two days or five days. He ended up home after two days, but he has support. He's got my mother watching him, and he's got hospital support as well. But, but so it, it depends a lot on the health and support systems and so forth as to how far this goes. But, yeah. but it's something that everybody everybody's very incented to because hospitals are trying to figure out how do they compete against the rest of the world that's moved towards an asset light model where they're an asset heavy model. Yeah, you, you talked about it in Venice. Intermountain also has that that digital uh, hospital concept in place. Mercy in St. Louis has the digital hospital concept in place. Are, are they positioned ahead of everybody else to be able to provide a higher level of acuity care out of the home, do you think? I, I think everybody, many places are trying to figure it out. I, I don't know if they're positioned ahead of it. What, what they do know is there's technology tools and there's staffing issues too. The beauty of the hospital model is you have all your patients in one place and you're staffing in one place. So there's there's actually a, a beauty of it from a staffing perspective where you're centralizing care. Now you're putting out all these different points of care, and it depends on how much it could be done technologically versus people going from place to place. I mean, what I've heard from some systems is what's causing them to slow down on doing this is they still can't staff it how they need to staff it. Yeah. Aside from getting patients comfortable with it, which more and more patients are comfortable with it because patients would like to, all things being considered, depending on their own health, be cared for at home than in the hospital. But staffing issues are a real, real challenge. You've interviewed a lot of people over the years. You've been with successful CIOs, CEOs, and whatnot. What do highly successful CIOs, CEOs do that that others may not do, obviously, without naming names? So what do they do? What aspects of the things they either choose to do or don't choose to do make them successful? Well, I think, I think you hit one thing right there. They're very good at prioritizing they're very, very good at team building, at building teams and relationships. And they have to be technically good enough. They have to have proved themselves somehow or another in a system. But ultimately, they've got to be very, very good at like, at, at the sort of like getting the most out of their people, like well-being, well-liked. So I always look at this mix of skills of bright, discipline, driven, and personal skills and great personal skills, great team building skills. There's also a complexity to the world. That, that many of us are not capable of. I'm not capable of it. For example, there's a big difference between running a team with 70 people than running a team with 3,500 people or 50,000 people. There's an ability to manage that kind of complexity that some people are capable of and some people are not. I, I don't view myself as personally capable of that. Others are very good at it. They, they see it well. They build teams well. They're able to manage all these different thoughts at one time and able to manage priorities. And I think the other part of all of this is there's an emotional maturity and emotional intelligence that comes with leadership that is absolutely critical to be able to be very good at this, to be very good as a leader, a CIO, a CEO, whatever it might be. There, there's an, an emotional centeredness. There, there's times where some of us could be too impulsive could be too excitable, could be two different things. And those could be very good qualities, but but there has to be a centeredness to leadership as well. So there's a, a number of different skill sets that seem to go with it. And I think probably tying a lot of that together is there's a consistency of leadership. People have to know what they're getting every day. And, and sort of what you've seen this, we've seen this with fasting role models. We've seen fasting leaders or magnificent leaders that can't help themselves but be change agents and change jobs every five to seven years. Then you've seen other magnificent CEOs that have been in the same place for a long time and just magnificent leaders and a steady hand. Nancy Agent at Carillion Clinic has now been there for some time, sort of a magnificent, steady leader and very supportive, very nurturing, very much a leader of people, not just not just excitement and the flavor of the day, but a serious leader for a serious period of time. And, and there's a consistency and a caring and a straightforwardness that come with being a great leader. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with Rod Hockman and and I, I sort of joked with him. I'm like, man, you, you kicked into talking points there. And he said, Bill, he said, I'm going to have to deliver that message about 200 times in the next three months. He goes, if I vary in the way I say it or miss something or whatever, that may be the only time that that person hears that message from me. 
and they will have half the message or they won't have all the message. So they understand the importance of communication, of discipline, and, and a message. And they understand that words are such a powerful thing as a leader in terms of rallying people, get them excited about the mission. It's, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's so many, so many things about, about being that leader of 30,000 people that is so different than leading a department. That's right. And Ron Ackman's a fascinating example. I mean, here's a guy who's been a consistently magnificent leader, an innovative leader, but with the message of Providence St. Joe's throughout the system is one of compassion, compassion and excellence. And, and they've done a great job of both delivering on that and building that reputation that they care. And, and Rod is a magnificent fire starter for both being an innovator and someone who cares. And, and that's got to come across. It's got to be true. It's got to be genuine, which I believe it is. And then it's got to be consistent and constantly the message that's sent and the way that they approach it. You see some of the great faith-based systems. Common spirit is right up at the top of this in terms of being viewed as sort of, we want to do great care and we care. And we actually care. We're, we're compassionate about what we do. We, we care about our people. We care about the people that we serve. And we want to be great at it too. I mean, it's it's a fascinating mix of things. And you see it differently in faith in certain faith-based systems than others. And you, and you see the the race to excellence plus compassion. And Rod Hockman's a great example of that. So, Scott, you're doing a bunch of speaking. I saw that you're going to be speaking on digital health. The money is just pouring into health tech, digital health at this point. I, I, part of me wants you to put in a crystal ball and, and, and sort of tell us what areas do you expect technology to have the, the greatest impact within healthcare over the next couple of years? Well, it, it is very, very hard for me to tell. I, I get the chance through what I do to talk to both lots of healthcare IT entrepreneurs, plus people that have funded them and others. And the reality is, I'd be lying to say I have a crystal ball. I'd say that many times it is dizzying to me the pace in trying to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. And so I don't have great clarity on it. What I do see is this. I sort of look at companies and divide them into five phases. There's the idea, which in some ways is meaningless because everybody's got an idea. And, and I don't mean that to be negative because in reality, big ideas make a big difference. But there's an idea. And then there's somebody actually taking the idea to product, to actually where it's actually a product. It's actually a software as a service. It's actually a technology that can be used. And that's sort of a big, giant step. It's a big funnel from idea to getting to the spot of actually having a product. Then there's actually having revenues. Can you actually turn it into revenue? Somebody actually want to buy it. Somebody actually want to use your product. Is there really a need for it or somebody really want to use it? Then we look at next, is there profits in it? Could they actually turn into profits? And then, then the big, big challenge and the big differentiator between so many of these companies is, is it something that could be scaled or not? And how are they going to scale it? That's a big unknown for a lot of these. So, so we, you could place bets on this alongside other very knowledgeable investors, but it's, it's very hard to tell. And so will money keep on pouring into digital health and digital technology? Absolutely. It, it's asset light. It's viewed as the gold mine. Some of these things will pop and become used by every system. Others won't, but it's absolutely money's going to keep pouring into it. When you talk to people in the digital health world, and everybody's raising funds in digital health, everybody and their brother's raising funds in digital health. And if you ask somebody, and, and I never know this as an investor, I never know this, they'll say, I always think it's the ninth inning. And somebody will tell me, no, it's the second inning. There's a huge amount of opportunity. And I never know. If I knew, I'd be far, far wealthier than I am, but I never know. And I'm very, very nervous by nature, just my nature as an investor and as a person. But they'll all tell you when you talk to them, no, we're in the second or third inning. This is just going to explode and so where to go. And, and that may be very well be the case. But in terms of deciding, is it going to be in predictive analytics? Is it going to be in a different type of EMR that's cloud-based, that sort of uh, takes away the, the sort of entrenchedness of epic concern and so forth? I don't know, or is it all these apps or is there software as a service that's going to be so deep and embedded in these things that that's going to be used by so many that it's going to be a winner? I, I don't know. There's just an explosion of, you and I know, like if you look at podcasting, at one point there were three podcasts, now there's a thousand new podcasts <laughs> today. If you look at digital technology, 
the, the people that have a much better sense of it, I talk to venture capital investors very often as part of our private equity podcast. And it's fascinating to me to sort of see the ecosystem that's built, built around all these things. And obviously, Seven Wire Ventures, hugely successful. They were one of the funders of Livongo and Glenn Tolman and Lee Shapiro out speaking a decent amount and brilliant, brilliant people. And they, they just raised another fund. They've, they've publicized it. They just raised another fund. And everybody hopes it's an investment in that fund, and I'm not, that they'll have the next Livongo in that fund. But who knows? So I don't know. I mean, it, it, but for COVID, telehealth, teledoc, all these things was taking off and doing great. But it, it was the last year was steroids for the max for those things. It made it made a Sammy Sosa's and Mark McGuire's out of a lot of those things, just because also there's this huge need for telehealth in a way that there wasn't before. So I I don't know what what inning we're in. It's very hard for me to predict. I'm not good at predicting it. But there'll certainly be certainly lots of Lots more winners. Yeah, absolutely. Are you a Cubs fan? I'm more of a Cubs fan than I'm a White Sox fan, but I like both, but I grew up more as a Cubs fan. I knew I'm not an anti-Sox person, but I knew that I was not a deep dyed in the wool Sox fan, even though my grandfather was. When the Sox won the World Series in 2005 or 2006, it, it didn't really register. I remember where I was. I wasn't that excited, whereas is when the Cubs won it, I was at the game and was and was quite excited. So it's it's it, it's a different. I I like the Sox. I've always liked the Sox, but I'm more of a Cubs fan. Well, I am a uh, I'm a Cardinals fan. So let, let's try to remain friends. I think you just took the lead. I think you're a half game up, maybe even maybe even a full full game up. Yeah, no, my brother-in-law is a Cardinals fan and as good a person as as they come. So we 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 could be friends and love Cardinals fans as well. Well, you would laugh. I moved to Naples, Florida. I have a Cardinals flag, little flag out in the front of our house. And I have a neighbor right across the street who has a Cubs flag and a neighbor two houses down that has a Cubs flag in front of their house. So Naples seems to attract people from from Chicago and in, in the Midwest. So I've actually bought some extra Cardinals flags. I'm going to steal their uh, Cubs flags and put Cardinals flags after I get to know them a little better before I uh, start doing that kind of stuff. Hey, hey, Scott, thanks. Thanks for so many things. Thanks for your contributions to the industry. Really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. It's always great to have this conversation. I look forward to catching up with you, hopefully in person next time. That would be that would be fantastic. We hope so. We don't think we're very far away from in-person meetings again. Bill, you've built a dynamic reputation in the industry for a very long time. Just magnificent. So what, what a great pleasure to get to visit with you today. And thank you very much. Hopefully I didn't offend anybody or embarrass myself, but a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.